Welcome to the Nerd Party. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Throwback Paperback. I'm one of your hosts, Charles Sheeland. And I'm the other host, Asia Bonilla. We're back this week starting our second book of our second series, The Secrets of the Immortal Nicholas Flamel. Today we're discussing the first half of The Magician, so we'll be talking about chapters 1 through 27. It's a bit of a longer reading, but as we'll see in the summary, still very little plot. Yeah, I've noticed that the series, and I was looking ahead, the readings are getting a little longer, but I do kind of enjoy the flow of a book every two weeks. I think you do too, Asia, but it's kind of a nice, like we get the buildup of the problems and our exposition, and then in the second episode, we get the climax and the resolution in the following week, so I feel like it's a good pace. Yeah. But just for anyone who's new to our show, we're a podcast on the Nerd Party Network. We're best friends and roommates, and we're reading and rereading young adult literature from our childhood and adolescence, and we're sharing these books with each other. And like Asia said, right now we're reading The Secrets of the Immortal Nicholas Fumel by Michael Scott, which I originally read for the first time when I was in middle school. We started the show with a series that I had read before and Charles read it for the first time, and now we've moved on to the Flamel books, which I'm reading for the first time. And as the newcomer to the series, I get to give a quick plot summary for anyone who needs a refresher of the main plot points of the reading. So, let's get into it. We have our crew of four arrive in Paris, and they're immediately attacked by the immortal human Niccolo Machiavelli, but they manage to escape him. They split up and spend half a day in Paris just trying to get some friends and allies and ultimately connect with the Count of St. Germain, who is also an immortal alchemist and good friend of Nicholas's. At his house, we meet his wife, the immortal Joan of Arc. Meanwhile, we have Dee and Machiavelli who are forced to work together because they both serve the Dark Elders, but they hate each other and have a pretty aggressive rivalry. Their plan is to separate Scatty from the rest so that they can capture the twins. Josh is given a sword called Clarent, and he learns a bit about fighting while Francis teaches Sophie fire magic. And back on the other continent, Perinelle has already gotten out of her cell, but she finds out that the entirety of Alcatraz is filled with the worst kinds of monsters that are basically waiting dormant, and she's stuck on Alcatraz knowing that these creatures are super duper dangerous. And that's pretty much where we finished. It feels like more plot when you have to say it, though. For sure. <laughs> anyway... My first impression was just, you know, Josh is just continuing to be annoying in this first half of the second book. And I also definitely noted throughout that if I thought this series was already scary, it definitely seems like it's going to be getting a lot worse. And I'm honestly not looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah. But that was my first impression. Yeah, there's definitely going to be some gross, dark stuff, I think, in the next book. I think we get like a pretty evil villain, like, gross monster, but I can't remember. Anyway, Great. my first impression is basically that I've noticed that I make up images for characters that are oftentimes completely different than the literal images, like, were given in the book. So I don't think it's that's nice that, oh, my goodness, I can't speak. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but I do think that, like, I clearly was not reading as closely as a middle schooler because I... Now, reading it again, I'm reading, you know, probably reading a little better. And I'm like, well, my images for Dee and Machiavelli were completely flipped. So in my brain, Dee was always tall and skinny and sort of like evil Bond villain vibes. And 
Machiavelli was short and evil and skinny. And those are completely wrong. D is short and fat and Machiavelli is tall and thin. And I'm just like hysterical that I've like reversed them and that that's, I was just convinced that it's what it was. And now I'm reading it. I'm like, well, you just inferred a lot and you actually went directly against the plot of the book, Charles. And I also didn't annoy, notice how annoying Josh was the first time I read the series. And now it seems to be all I can think about as I read it is like my frustrations with Josh. And I'm sure we'll get to more of that. Yep. But I think we can jump right in. New book. We start in media res with our new character, Machiavelli. Yeah. So I immediately wrote down that that whole opening with the auction reminded me of like the beginning of a movie, like some kind of spy movie. So I just found that really intriguing. Like that's... One of the scenes that just seemed like I could see that on the big screen. And that's when we meet Niccolo Machiavelli, who at the beginning, I was just guessing that he was the magician from the title just because I assumed it was going to be a new character. But we also learn that he works for the Dark Elders like D. Yep. And I think I've kind of hinted in the past about how Machiavelli might be one of my favorite characters. I know I was saying a character in this book and Machiavelli is... He might be my favorite character in the whole series, and you'll see him for the rest of the five books, this one and the next ones. But, um, and for those of you that don't know, Machiavelli was obviously a person in real history. He was, um, I believe, during um, the Italian period of city-states, um, maybe even the Medici period, but that didn't, I'm not sure. But he was a very famous um, political philosopher in whatever the century was, Italy that he's from. And he wrote a couple of books on political theory. Most notably, The Prince is probably the most famous one. It's basically about like being vicious. Again, I'm totally generalizing. That's not actually what The Prince says. But it's very much about being sort of ruthless if you want to hold power as a monarch. And so he's a real person. So again, you look him up. Is he the, is he the ends justify the means? Is that him? It may be. Else? I feel like that was Hobbes, but I can't remember. I'm just like he might be. Okay. It's it's very in any, tune with I what I remember of, but I never read The Prince, so who am I to summarize it? And do you remember about the title? You just said you thought he might be the magician. Do you remember how I said last episode that the author of the series had tweeted back at me? Yeah. So he tweeted again about the when I I posted the social media stuff about episode two, and he messaged me on Twitter, and he was like. The color of the American first editions of the book indicate the titular character. And you know how the alchemist is sort of a dark mottled green teal? Well, that's Flamel's aura. And this one has kind of got an orange color. That's not quite D's yellow, but it's the closest to any of the color characters we know what their color, their aura is. D's is yellow, so D is the magician. Also, he will, as this book goes on, get referred to more and more as the magician. At least I'm like 90% sure that's what Michael Scott was telling me on Twitter, that D is the author. But, you know, he might listen to this episode and be like, well, Charles, you got it all wrong again. D is the magician. Yeah. Really quick, going back, I just looked it up, and The Ends Justify the Means was said by Machiavelli. So thank you, AP European History, the only thing I remember. Okay, I'm giving snaps. I don't know if you can hear them on the mic, but I'm snapping for Asia. Anyway, we basically have a big fight, and they all have to fight the Tulpa, which is like this giant like monster of wax, which is just gross. And Machiavelli is closing in, and he catches them, but Sophie is able to bring her vanilla-smelling fog out of her fingers so that they can get away. And just 
proof of how awesome Sophie already is. And then Josh has to go and ruin it. Right afterwards, he's, like, blaming Flamel for tiring Sophie out. And I'm like, would you rather Sophie's tired or would you rather she's dead? Because if Machiavelli caught you, probably wouldn't be in such a good place. And in a second, he says to Sophie, and he keeps asking himself, he's like, who does Nicholas serve? And I'm like, we know that Nicholas serves the Codex. He says it all the time. It's pretty clear. And again, I'm sure we'll talk about this. Like, we know for a fact that D serves someone else. And my biggest, my frustration with Josh, again, I don't want to, you know, only harp on Josh at the beginning, because I'm sure we'll have more times. My frustration is that he is selectively questioning Nicholas and not comparing him to the other options. I'm like, you're in this new fantasy world. You've got a few things to frame your reference around. You've got Flamel and D as the two, like, main immortal humans you know. You know you can't trust Flamel. Sure, totally get that. But you... When you compare him to D, you have proof that D is a murderer, and you know that D works for the Dark Elders because D literally told you that. So, I just like healthy skepticism, sure, but I feel like him being like, "Who does Nicholas serve?" I'm like, we know who Nicholas serves, and we definitely know that whoever Nicholas serves, it can't be as bad as the Dark Elders because Nicholas is not going around killing people. Yeah, I'm I'm constantly frustrated with Josh and I'll definitely get more into it in a little bit. Me too. But I also had to flag something down for Charles, so maybe I could laugh at him because Machiavelli's magical scent, it says he smells like snakes, which for one I was like what does a snake even smell like? But I was just wondering if that bothered you or scared you because obviously we know that you're very afraid of snakes. It didn't scare me because it's the only thing I the thing I hate about snakes is the way they move and the way they look. So Machiavelli doesn't he's he just smells like a snake. I'm not really sure what a snake smells like. I've kind of figured it just smelled like wet leather, but I looked it up just for you as I was prepping the outline, and it was pretty disgusting to look up what it smells like. That was actually more terrifying for me, and my stomach is churning just talking about it. But basically, yeah, I would have never done that. <laughs> well, the things I do for our listeners. But basically, it depends on the snake. But it's generally like a damp and musky smell. Kind of, a lot of the descriptions were that it kind of smells like old shoes. And that it's really distinctive. Ew. But that's really disgusting. It's really vile. But it does serve as a pretty good segue into Machiavelli, I guess. Because he has a computer file recording all of the characters and the elders in the immutal immortal humans and I was like that's what I want that's what I want to keep track of like where each immortal human is and whom they're allied to and speaking of which Asia do you have any other questions at the beginning that I can help answer as we jump into the plot I don't think so but I just I wonder how like did he did he get all those things all that information together on his own or like I think so I think like he has his network of spies like Dagon um or Dagon, I don't know. I, I always called him Dagon in my head, but like Dagon, like like dragon, yeah. but like, dragon, but without the without R. the R. He kind of has been working for Machiavelli, and like I think it's like interrogation, and but I do think it's like him because he's very clear that no one else knows he has this list, so it's got to be like he was compiling this for himself. Yeah. Well, anyway, so I'm just going to go ahead and land to Josh for a second uh, because I wrote down that. Kind of how you were talking about earlier, um, he's so skeptical of Nick, but he's also just so set on blaming Nicholas for everything when obviously they eventually would have been in danger no matter what because 
they're the twins of the prophecy. So this was their destiny, their fate. So I feel like he isn't quite understanding that. And I don't, Sophie hasn't really talked about it, but like, I feel like they've made it pretty clear that like this was going to happen no matter what. And it's just better now that they have all these other magical beings on their side trying to help them, trying to help them awaken their powers and control them. And then I just noted that, of course, when they're in the cafe and the police show up and Scotty specifically says, don't turn around, the police are behind you, Josh looks anyway. Just terrible. I hate him. <laughs> oh my goodness. Hate so strong. But you can always keep going. And if you want to come back to Josh later, I'm sure we can. I'll definitely be coming back to it. But that's it for now. Okay. Well, let's do a little bit of world building. You know, that's my job. We get Nicholas explaining, and I think this is good context for the rest of the series, but there's three types of immortals. Basically, they're these ancients, and we'll meet some next book, who have been around since the beginning of humankind. And they are just sort of, they're kind of, in a way, very similar to the elders, and that they've been around forever, but they're not like gods. Abraham the Mage, for example, I think is an ancient. Um, then we have people like Nick and Perinel, and in a second, Germain and um, Joan, who have figured out ways to become immortal by themselves. And then finally, there's the people who work for elders in exchange for immortality. And those could be dark elders or just regular elders. But those are the ones where you, like Dean Machiavelli, where you are basically a servant because they can just take the immortality away at any moment. And world building, of course, Catherine de' Medici is an immortal because, of course she is, big historical figure, had to be immortal. But now she's living in Paris, apparently. Anyway, into the plot. We have our crew on the run. And I wanted to mention that so far the only thing I'd want to see on the screen is Scatty in a fight. Like how that's described. I feel like that would be really cool to see. Yeah. And I love that she's not killing anyone. It's not like she's shooting someone with a firearm, like an action sequence. She's knocking people out. So she's not doing like the easy thing of just killing them. Like she has to actually knock them out. So it'd be really cool to see. I agree. Yeah. (laughs) And right after that big fight in the cafe, we have a really great Sophie moment where she talks to Josh. And I, for me, I was just glad that Sophie isn't buying into Josh's doubts. And she even mentions how he's more of a loner and she's more fiercely loyal than him. So that kind of got me thinking that like, maybe I do relate more to Sophie because I definitely am more of a loyal person. Like when I make a friend or something, like I just want to stay connected to them. Yeah, I wrote that down too, that exact line. I was like, Sophie is loyal. Josh is a loner. And I do want to say, yeah, I know. I was like, well, she just she just laid him. She ripped him. But I do want to say that I think that Scott's writing is really good in that it's been consistent about Josh. Like, we've had indicators that Josh has had this sort of flaw of being distrustful and skeptical the whole time. And it's consistent. He's a teenager. I'm not saying I would make that decision. I think it's irrational. But he has been sort of consistent in his what I would say, inferiority. But I do think that's, uh, it's it's a testament to his write, to the writing that like also Josh's backstory supports that. Like the fact that Sophie has always thought of him as a bit of a loner and someone she has to take care of and include. Mm-hmm. Makes sense that he's also like pretty skeptical. Like Josh is realistically annoying. Like when he complains about splitting up, like it was a really good idea, but when he suggests the splitting up, he thought that he really thought that Flamel and Scotty were going to be like, yes, the two twins who don't speak French can just go off on their own. Yeah, that Whereas, made no like, sense. <laughs> it made no sense. And I was like, if you'd thought one second longer, you could have said, 
you could have suggested it differently. Like maybe the two of us with Scatty, that was working really well. Like you could have said that, but he didn't. Same way, like he almost got Hecate to kill him, like because he didn't think. And that's all, like it all ties into Josh's character. So he is consistently Josh. It's just that I don't like Josh. Yeah, that's why it's just, it's so easy to hate him, how he's written, because he has almost no redeeming qualities. Read him for filth. But anyway, around that time, Scatty says something important that I wanted to mention. And she talks about how as nice as immortality sounds and seems. I liked what she said about it being super lonely, which is why for me, if I were to be immortal, like I'd need a partner like how Nick Nicholas and Paranel are together because to me that it would be worthwhile yeah I agree and I do like the developing Sophie Scatty friendship I think it's excellent and I think it's a really nice respite from the rest of the plot like the even though Scatty is 2,000 years old like she's still like a little bit of a teenage young girl at heart and I think that their bonding is really sweet and it's the same thing we were talking about when we were reading Percy Jackson that Percy didn't take the immortality when he was offered it at the end because he didn't want to be lonely and he didn't want to be without the people he cares about, a.k.a. Annabeth. Yeah. So it is a lonely choice. Yeah. So back to Josh, okay. which it's just because whenever I'm reading, he says something problematic and then I have to I have to say something about it. But he says how he could never forgive Flamel for putting Sophie in danger. And once again, he's failing to see that they were already in danger. They were going to be in danger because they are part of the prophecy. And Flamel is just trying to help them be the most prepared they possibly can for this destiny they for this destiny that they've been given. And that's why like I've also just concluded that like Josh is definitely a coward because I think that ultimately every time that they like they time they tried to escape in the last book, like with their stupid plan, like, Josh initiated that. Like, I think he's just so afraid. And maybe it's also because he doesn't have his powers yet, but he's really afraid and, like, wants to just run away, which is just kind of embarrassing, I feel like, especially compared to his sister, who just seems to be taking it a lot better. And then he's also just kind of selfish. Like, Flamel's made it clear that the world is going to end, which takes me back. I think he made another comment when he's talking to Flamel and he's like, do you not understand that, like, if you don't do anything, the world will end and all humans will become slaves? And he was like, well, what's so bad about that? What kind of response is that? That's terrible. And Flamel even points out to him how to look at other people as individuals rather than just disposable human beings who, just like the Dark Elders, they see them as slaves or food. So I just, that's why, like, I mean, most of my notes were just he says a lot of problematic things. Absolutely. And I like that moment that you mentioned, the Flamel, where Flamel's like, don't think of them as a group of people, think of them as individuals. I really like that Dagan says that to Machiavelli about the same time. A little, maybe, it's maybe a little later on, but Machiavelli is like, I'll do anything to get rid of Flamel. And Dagan's like, you sound like D. And Machiavelli's like, no, I'm not. And Dagan's like, maybe you need to think about that. Like, mm-hmm. It's a really good parallel that we get, like, our protagonists and our antagonists grappling with the same thing. Yeah, and then Flamel says that he can trust Josh with the pages because he gives him the last page of the Codex, which I wouldn't. I wouldn't trust Josh based on his actions, the things he said. Like, he is not trustworthy at all. He's very selfish. I feel like if at any moment he has an escape, 
to leave, he would take it. I mean, if he could take Sophie with him, because I feel like that's really the only thing keeping him here. So I wouldn't. But, you know, I understand why Flamel's trying to include him in everything. Yeah. Still. He's not, trying to make Josh feel included, but it's stupid. I would definitely not do that either. I thought that was a bad idea. <laughs> but then we finally get to meet some more good guys. We meet Francis St. Germain, who is the master of fire. And he has some weird butterfly powers with, like, butterfly tattoos that he can make come off of his skin, which I thought was cool. And we also get to meet Joan of Arc, who is Francis's wife. And we find out that Flamel did a blood transfusion on Joan with Scaddy's blood that made her immortal, but with none of the vampire side effects, which I read that and I was like, yep, that's how I want to be immortal. Right there, you get to be immortal with none of the consequences or having to serve anybody or having to know how to do magic. Like, sounds perfect. Yeah, that's truly the best way to become immortal yet. Joan wins that game for sure. And you know how I was tracking some funny stuff in Percy Jackson? And I have been tracking it in this series too, but I haven't been as vocal about it. But there was a really funny writing moment where Francis says, like, no one even knows you're here in the chapter. And then the next page, the next chapter starts, and it's Machiavelli telling D, he's like, this is their exact location. Like, I was giggling out loud that we got that exact irony. Yeah, that was a very funny moment. I remember that. And then there's a really kind of dark moment right after that when D thinks D talks about how he believes the elders will bring civilization back to earth which from what we've been told by Flamel and their party they say that it'll be destroying civilization because the elders like I said don't see the humans as anything besides slaves or food so I just think it's kind of ironic and like funny that he thinks that the elders are going to make the world this amazing beautiful place this paradise talks about returning to this paradise while the human beings i guess that he is a human being he's just an immortal one they're just going to turn them all into slaves or they're going to eat them so it's just a little bit of dark humor i guess yeah like he literally has that like monologue where he's like the elders will cure the diseases and close the ozone layer too bad all the humans will be dead i was like what don't don't you see the irony here, T? Like, are you not seeing how ridiculous you sound? And I do want to mention, we keep getting this back and forth from all the characters, not just between D and Machiavelli, but also our good guys who are all like, who is stronger? Machiavelli is much more cunning. D is much more ruthless. And then we're like, who is more powerful? And we don't know who either of their masters are yet. So it's just, and then D and Machiavelli hate each other too, even though they have to work together. So yeah. I just really like that we've got that dynamic. Same way we don't have a united front on our protagonists, like we have Josh being annoying. We- it's just Josh. <laughs> okay. It's we don't- just Josh. It's just Josh on our non-united protagonist front, but we also have a non-united antagonist, which I appreciate. Which, okay, because we're back to Josh again. One thing I have to say before I get into my quote that I literally was screaming he how you just talked about how d was saying we were talking about the paradise thing and how they can take away disease josh makes a comment like that i think to nicholas or something or to sophie about how or i think he's talking to nicholas because he's like you've had the codex all this time why didn't you do that and he's like well it's not mine like the book doesn't belong to me i'm the protector of the book and he even says that he's like i think it belongs to you and sophie that you and sophie will be able to do these things and he's still like i can't trust him and i'm just I don't know. I just, 
he's very much like he he just aligned so much more with like the evil characters like his beliefs and like you just said like of how there's not like it's not necessarily unity on the good side i'm like it's just because of josh because josh keeps having all these doubts and like these evil thoughts but anyway back to my quote that i wrote down this is josh referencing josh's thoughts and he's it says he was quickly realizing that in this new magical world there was no place for someone like him someone without power without power they've already said that josh josh's aura which is gold is even more rare than Sophie's and that he is going to be powerful. He just hasn't had his powers awakened. So I was just like, he's just so dramatic because he's saying, he says it when Joan is talking to Sophie in her sleep to try and help her control her aura. And he's like, I was dismissed when she was learning the elements of air. And now I'm being dismissed before she's about to go learn fire. He's like, I just don't belong here. And it's like, oh my God, (laughs) it's just, like you were talking, it's it's realistic because like he's consistently annoying, but it's like oh my gosh, like not somebody I'd want to be friends with. But also, little side note detail is that as if I couldn't hate him anymore, he also prefers PC over Max, which we all know is just an abomination. Like Max are clearly superior. And then, <laughs> I mean. Do you have anything to say? No, I, I agree. I mean, I, I, I work on a PC now, but I have a Mac. I, we, I, we both record this podcast from a Mac. Would you, ever, would you ever buy a PC of your own volition for your personal computer? No, not anymore. This exactly. is not an endorsement. Exactly. I love Windows. Um, what's his name? I think it serves certain purposes, but I feel like for most people, for a personal computer. Also for us. You do not want a PC. You want a Mac. And for us, like, we're creative people and we have to share files, like, easily. And there, there's something about sharing your fo- your videos from your iPhone to your Mac on AirDrop that is just, like, the fastest. Like, there's just no other way. <laughs> and then, so then moving on, then we find out that Nicholas hid a sword, which is the sword Flamel hid was Clarent, which is the twin blade of Excalibur. And it is the Sword of Fire. And he gives it to Josh to protect himself until his powers are able to be awakened. And of course, you know, everybody else in the room when he gives it to him is like, oh my god, get that away from me. Like, really dramatic. And you're like, whoa, what's wrong? And of course, it turns out that this weapon is evil and cursed. And it's sometimes called the Coward's Blade. Again, perfect for Josh. And it's the sword Mordred used to kill his uncle, King Arthur. So it's... A cursed blade, basically, which, of course, that's the blade Josh ends up with. Of course. Well, <laughs> I'll say some things about Josh just to... We get this moment between him where she's being really sensitive to his feelings because he's like, you know, you have all this power. And she's like, I want to tell him how awful it is. Like, I didn't like getting another woman's 10,000 years of memories implanted in my brain. I don't like being able to smell the, everything this powerfully. And she's like, but she is sensitive to his feelings. And she's like, I'm going to wait until he knows what it's like because he's not going to understand. And he's clearly not practicing very good empathy right now. So Josh cannot put himself in Sophie's shoes, but she can put herself in his. So first off, yay, Sophie, boo, Josh. And then Josh is like, I think it would be interesting to have powers And I'm like, excuse me? No, you want the powers. And then she's like, excuse me? No, you want the powers. And then Josh has like like a major Smeagol moment where he's like, 
yes, I want the power. That's not a Smeagol voice. That's just like my impression of Darth Mm. Josh. And then he starts again. He's like, I can't trust them. And he says to Sophie, he's like, I think you're seeing what they want you to see. And when he said that, I was like, I feel like you're doing the exact same thing. Like, it really bothered me. And it clearly bothered Sophie, too, because he's like, we don't know the witch. And she's like, I literally know everything about the witch. Yeah. (laughs) But I was like, it really bothered me because, again, I think we sort of hinted at this last time, but... It feels like he is he's being very selective in what he listens to and who he like who he's less trusting. And again, as we've both said, it's totally fine to distrust Flamel. I get that. But he's his distrust and his denial of Sophie is really what makes me so frustrated because I'm like you're you guys have been a united front for 16 years, like why would you stop trusting her all of a sudden? Stop yeah. insinuating that she's been hoodwinked. Like, distrust Nick all you want, sure. But don't turn on Sophie. Like, that's just a bad idea. Which that just, again, stems from the jealousy of the power thing. Absolutely. And then we get their training sessions. And how many times did Joan and Scotty tell him to hold the sword with two hands? And he keeps picking it up with one. And I'm like, are you deaf? Like, are you dumb? He thinks he's strong enough to hold it with one. It's made of stone. It's made of stone. Stupid. And then Sophie just does amazing. She's incredible. Picks up fire like that. Also, Asia, did you notice the thing during the training, the fire training? What thing? Just the how she was, they tattooed the trigger on her body, and so then she can summon. Before that. Before that. When um, Jermaine is like, some people will say that air magic or water magic or earth magic is the strongest, but actually it is fire. It's sort of the same thing. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, of course, they're all going to think whatever their magic is. They're going to be like, it's the best because I'm doing it. So Mm. it has to be the best. Um, mm, Not true. Wait till you get to earth magic. That's spoiling. But anyway, keep an eye on it because it's really funny, especially because he, I think I might be misremembering it, but I think in this one, he's literally like, some people say that earth or water or even air, like he's like so petty and sassy about air. And I just thought that was really funny. Well, based on what we've learned about the two that we've been presented with, between air and fire, like, to me, the fire one seems way cooler. He talks about how she's able to heal Josh, like, his blisters on his hand with the fire. Like, to me, it would be one thing if, like, for fire magic, you had to be near fire. Like, with water, you have to be with water, which we don't know about that yet. But, like, the fact that it it seems like for all these, you're going to be able to just make these things at will like you're gonna be able to create it which if you can create fire at will i'm sorry but that to me seems way cooler but obviously the best thing is just to be uh real rounded and know how to do everything and you mentioned that tattoo trigger which we should definitely talk about more and i like the explanation that francis gives that the fire because you're actually generating it it's directly correlated to the purity of your aura and that's why you have the trigger because Like the water one, I believe, and I could be misremembering this, but I think you have to be near water. You have to be acting on water because you can't summon water. Which is why fire would be better. Because fire, but because like it's directly feeding off of your aura that you need a trigger. Like I liked that because fire is the only one where you have the little tattoo trigger. Um, And so I really liked that explanation as to why it's a little different because it is something you're generating. And it to me seems like it was, I mean, again, we've only been with the air where she mummified her and gave her not just the knowledge of the power of air, she gave her all of her knowledge, versus this, he just tattooed it on her and said, here you go, this is how you do it. It just seemed a little bit less complicated, so I'm also like, I like this one. Definitely. So do you have any questions 
at all about our European storyline or anything you want to discuss before we move on? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. Well, we need to just run back to our B-plot back in San Francisco. Before we wrap up this episode, we need to check in with Paranel, who has escaped her room on Alcatraz. Oh, God. You can't see Asia's face because this is a podcast. But she's already using her ghost friends, Juan de Ayala, to terrorize the Sphinx, and that's going to keep going. But basically, she's getting out of Alcatraz, and she keeps seeing these dormant monsters that D has accrued there. And specifically, we see a lot of spider webs, (laughs) and... We, she's about to get oh, ambushed God. by spiders, and as we know, Asia hates spiders. Asia, would you do me a favor and read your notes on Chapter 26 verbatim for me? Oh, gosh. I mean, before before we even got to the mention of the spiders, like, I already knew it was coming. Because, you know, they had the webs, and she's like, I, I don't know what's what it's going to be. And I was like, I think it was still worse than what I was expecting. But even before that, the fact that she's talking about there's all these monsters, I was like, she's literally in the worst situation ever. I do not want to be paranoid. I want to be as far away from her as possible. <laughs> but anyway, my notes that I wrote. Ver- this is the actual notes that Asia submitted to me <laughs> when I wrote the outline. Also, because this is like the second to last chapter of the reading. So I was, you know, not really, there wasn't. Really- this is ignoring the text Asia sent me when she finished the chapter. <laughs> so... I put all caps, no, 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 no. Next bullet point. I never want to see this as a movie, show, anything. Last bullet point, all caps again. Disgusting and officially a horror movie. Goodbye. Yep, that was it. Oh, my God, it's so funny. I was like, we just have to keep this in verbatim. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, no, I mean, it's gross. The monsters are gross. And she's going to be on Alcatraz, I think, for the the whole rest of this book and the next book. How is she going to escape? She's. I would be gone. I'd jump in the water. I'd rather die of drowning at that point. But she's a good person. She can't just leave all the monsters in the middle of San Francisco. Leave all the, uh, forget the monsters. They, they, they're on their own. I'm out of there. I'd be swimming. I would die by drowning before I would stay on that island. <laughs> well, that's the difference between you and Paranel. Especially she doesn't have her powers. Nope. I'm out of there. She's getting them back slowly, but The Sphinx is going to come get her and just hold her down for, okay, moving on. Yeah. Anything else you want to add before we finish this episode? (laughs) Well, one thing I wanted to ask that they kind of mentioned throughout is there is this hook-handed mysterious man who Flamel said told him and Paranel that he was the immortal in the prophecy. And he, they learned that Francis, it's the same guy who taught Francis fire magic. So I was just wondering when we're going to find out or find out the identity of this man. Like, are we going to do it by the end of this book or is it not going to be for way later? I think it's going to be way later. He's really, really important. He'll be really, really important in book six in the final book. But the hook-handed man is a really, really important character and as it seems, like, Sophie already knows who he is because she almost says the witch his, knows She who. almost says his name. I yeah. thought that was funny. That was a she really was clever like, moment where Flamel was like, don't say it, don't say it. And she's like, yeah, I was ready. <sighs> but he's really important. I don't think we're going to get many answers on him for the next few books. I think we're just going to get, like, him creeping up in a lot of places. But he's very important. And if you look at, if you have all the books, his hook is on the fifth book. Because the covers of the books, as we've already discussed, have a lot of significance to the plot. The hook is on the sixth book, 
on the cover, but I'm not going to tell you what his name is. I remember his name from reading these series it's like, like a decade ago. It's like Voldemort, the one who can't be named. He who must not be named. He who must Voldemort not. and no. The correct pronunciation of Voldemort, there's n- the T is silent. Doesn't matter. It's We're French. American. We say everything wrong. It's fine. <laughs> I say Voldemort too, but it is Voldemort. And also, if you say it with a British accent, it sounds like Vol- Voldemort. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, I'm not going to tell you who the hook handed man is, but keep flagging it because he is very important. He's going to, seems like he's going to tie everybody together. That is correct. Well, I can't wait to keep reading. Uh, I don't want to read any more about Paranel, so, you know, we can leave her over there and just forget about her. And I'm also just, I think Josh can go, but he's a main character, so unfortunately he has to stay. But anyway, we're going to be finishing up The Magician for next week, so go ahead and read to the end of the book if you're reading along with us. Yes, I can't wait, because I think we get at least one more elder, and I think we get some awesome scattiness. I can't remember the details, but I think we have a lot of rising, we have a lot of action. And if you have any questions or predictions or theories or comments, remember that you can always reach out to us on the Nerd Party website. You can head over to nerdparty.com slash contact, select throwback paperback. You can find us there. You send us an email, get in touch with us. You can also get in touch with the whole network on Twitter at Join Nerd Party or on Instagram at The Nerd Party or on Facebook slash The Nerd Party. You can find me on social media. I'm at C.E. Sheeland on both Twitter and Instagram. And I'm at AsiaBoney on Twitter and at Asia.Bonia on Instagram. If you enjoyed this, make sure that you rate and review the podcast and share it with your friends. And of course, check out the other podcasts on the Nerd Party Network. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss us next week. Yep. Hit that subscribe. Have a good one. We'll see you next week. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party.